Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Mexican modernism. My guest is Matthew Afron, a curator at the Philadelphia Museum of Art and one of the co-curators of Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910-1950, which is on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston through October 1st. The exhibition chronicles the history of Mexican modernism at the beginning of the 20th century and the social, political, and cultural forces that shaped it. It's a remarkable show. It was on my 2016 top 10 list. We'll have links to that at manpodcast.com. On the second segment, Andrea Chung discusses an exhibition of her work titled You Broke the Ocean and Have to Be Here at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. But first, Matthew Afron, after a break. SF MoMA presents Edvard Munch, Between the Clock and the Bed, on view now. Munch was one of the most celebrated and controversial artists of his generation, painting technically daring artworks that explore profoundly human themes about art, love, and the ravages of time. This not-to-be-missed exhibition reveals Munch as a tireless innovator throughout a career that spanned six decades, and offers a rare opportunity to see this modern master's paintings in person, including seven works never before shown in the United States. Edvard Munch, Between the Clock and the Bed, is on view now through October 9th. Get tickets at sfmoma.org. Support comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting Blue Black, curated by influential American artist Glenn Ligon. Inspired by his experience of the Pulitzer's monumental Ellsworth Kelly wall sculpture, Blue Black, Ligon enlists the colors blue and black to pose timely and nuanced questions, touching upon notions of language, identity, and perception. The exhibition brings together a diverse selection of more than 50 works, ranging from abstraction to portraiture, from Norman Lewis to Andy Warhol, and including well-known works by Ligon. Blue Black is on view now through October 7th. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Matthew Afron, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you. Before we get into the specifics of your exhibition, I'm struck by how modern art from Mexico, uh, to say nothing of, of several of the artists who made it, were fundamental to the founding and early years of what are now America's two major museums of modern art, MoMA and SF MoMA. Why did Mexican art from the first few decades of the 20th century attract so much attention here and then, especially? And why did it fall out of the American, out of American public spaces so thoroughly in the ensuing decade? That's an excellent question, I think, because it really addresses one of the big themes of the exhibition. One of the sections of the show is about what happened when modern uh, artists from Mexico came in the 20s and 30s and early 40s to the U.S. Um, the, the most, some of the most well Known examples would be Diego Rivera and Frida Kahlo, who crisscrossed the U.S. in, in the 30s together, uh, Rivera making murals on the West Coast and in Detroit and in New York, and Frida Kahlo painting. Also, Jose Clemente Orozco, also Alfredo Ramos Martinez, David Alfaro Siqueiros, they're all, they're all in the States uh, in the 30s. And so we, we thought it was important to focus on that. But to step back to your question, one of the things that I did not know, but which leapt to my attention in the course of doing research for the show, was the incredibly high prestige of, of modern art from Mexico and of, of, of historical Mexican art and culture as well, and folk arts and so forth in the States, uh, starting in the late 20s and, and in the 30s and, and into the 40s. 
and one of the the signal exhibitions is was an exhibition it was a show in, in the, around 1940 at the moma 20th centuries of mexican art there were many others in 1943 the philadelphia museum of art where i work did a, a major exhibition called mexican art today in other words what was then contemporary art for mexico in other words a show that really is a major precedent for the exhibition that's on now in Houston that we are discussing. So why was it, why, what were the reasons for this great prestige of modern Mexican art? One reason I think was that uh, people in the U.S. were very struck by the fact that there was something new coming from Mexico in modern art, something that was very connected to the world scene and to the most cutting edge developments, both in the U.S. and in Europe in various ways, but which was interesting and different because it was coming from a North American rather than a European source. Mexico appeared as the, as the source of a great ancient North American culture and also as the source of a very exciting modern culture coming from, from North America. And so in the U.S., where for, for so long Europe had, had seen, appeared to have a kind of cultural dominance, um, this was very refreshing. And, and then, of course, you have other things once you get to World War II, uh, people aren't traveling to Europe from the States in the same way. And there's, there, and there's a lot of uh, focus on, on Mexico at that point, too, just as at that moment, many European exiles are coming to, to North America and some of them to New York and many of them to Mexico City. So I'd say that the reasons are long term and specific in the 20s, 30s and 40s and have to do with new trends in culture and also uh, great crises in, in politics and economics. Mm. Well, let's leave America and, and go to Mexico. Your, your show starts in 1910. Why that year? And why is national politics more important to the development of modernism in Mexico than it is to anywhere else, except maybe, of course, Vienna? Well, so, you know, when you're, when you're framing the chronology of an exhibition, you're always looking for threshold moments uh, or watersheds that you can use to, uh, to start a story and end a story. And so 1910 is the beginning of the, of the Civil War and Revolution, which changed uh, many, many things about life in Mexico. The first, uh, some, some, some say, or one way to think of it is as the first successful political revolution of the 20th century before the Bolshevik Revolution, which came some, a few years later. The Mexican Revolution created a new constitution in 1917, which uh, was an extremely forward-looking and uh, worker-oriented constitution and is the model for many constitutions around the world. And that's just one part of the, of the story of how this uh, political event really was catalytic for many things uh, in the country. So that, that marks the beginning point. It's, it's handy also that you have a whole generation of artists who, in the decade of the teens, and I'm thinking of people like Diego Rivera and Jose Clemente Roscoe and, and others, start to become who they will be. So it's, it's a, a date which is also, also plausible for a kind of beginning point for a whole series of great careers in, in modern art in Mexico. The ending date, 1950, is a little bit less clear-cut. There is no great turning point in, in history that would be equivalent. But uh, once you go, once you fast forward four decades and you get past World War II, although many of the great figures of the show are still working, by 1950, they're also starting to become historical figures. Uh, the history of modern Mexican art 
is starting to be written uh, by scholars and by museum curators and through exhibitions around 1950. And so we took that as a kind of convenient ending point. I think when American audiences think of Mexican modernism in their own minds, in our own minds, we start with the murals. But of course, there is modern painting in Mexico before the murals and by painters other than the muralists. What in that first decade of your show, around what in around what ideas and and kind of pictorial concepts, if you will, does does your show kind of, uh, kind of organize in that first decade? Well, it's it's interesting. Uh, of course, modernism in Mexico predates 1910. The, there's a phenomenon called modernismo, which is more or less equivalent to international symbolist painting, which gets going in the 1890s. So one could one could uh, locate the beginning and uh, differently, and that would give a different sort of a, a face of the phenomenon of modernism. But our choice does make the 1910s the beginning for our account. And the the first section of the five uh, in our exhibition walkthrough centers on that decade of the teens. And the big point it makes is that for modern artists in Mexico then, and this would be a pattern that would hold all the way throughout the story we're telling up to the midpoint of this of the century and certainly afterwards for modern artists you have a kind of dual agenda which is in no way contradictory but which is complicated and interesting and the dual agenda is first of all to find ways to connect what you're doing to what is most um, cutting edge and innovative uh, aesthetically in in the world uh, so the connections with what's going on in this paris art scene uh, also in spain are very important and you have artists traveling to Europe and then coming back to Mexico and through their example, and some of them were also teachers, they're, they're connecting the Mexico, Mexico City art world to, to international art centers. One of the big um, examples would be Diego Rivera, who spent virtually the entire decade of the teens, not in Mexico, but in Paris. So virtually the entire time of the revolution and the Civil War, not in Mexico, but in Paris, rubbing elbows with the Cubists and becoming a very prominent member of the Cubist avant-garde. So that was a, a priority for everyone in, in, in the story that we're telling. At the same time, these artists also want to link their work in one way or another to, to something that they can consider to be authentically rooted in a Mexican experience, a historical experience, social experience, connected to Mexican culture, and so forth. So... You have modernism and you have Mexicanness, and and what's fascinating in the first section is to compare the different ways in which figures as similar and different as Diego Rivera or Dr. Atel, which is the pseudonym of an artist named Gerardo Murillo, who's really a, a leader of the avant-garde in that earlier moment, or Alfredo Ramos Martinez or uh, Jose Clemente Orozco, the different ways in which they organize themselves to face these two agendas that we're um, saying dominated uh, the, the, the working method. One of the things that really struck me when I saw the show and, and that I later realized screamed out of the catalog as well is that painter after painter presents, uh, offers a similar pictorial strategy, a foregrounded figure with a landscape, uh, a Mexican landscape, immediately closely behind them in, in shallow space. And there's a two-page spread in the catalog that shows this really clearly. We'll have both paintings on manpodcast.com. Both paintings are in the Philly Museum's collection, Rufino Tamayo's Man and Woman from 1926 and Dr. Adel's Great Self-Portrait of 1928. 
why was that juxtaposition of people, landscape, and shallow space something that so many different artists seized upon? I, I agree that it's it's a striking pattern, and clearly that juxtaposition allows you to foreground a, a portrait and a, uh, and a person and an environment, and, and often an environment that's symbolic in one way or another. Now, one of the differences between those two works, or interesting tensions, is that you have, on the one hand, in Dr. Otto's great self-portrait, which has him sort of silhouetted against a great volcano, and, and the volcano was his great subject. He took it as a symbol of his own personality and genius, and also as a, a national symbol of, of Mexicanness, which he, is, which he adopted for himself. The Otto self-portrait, of course, is a, a portrait of a of, of an individual and of a painter because it's a self-portrait. And and so that's not one thing. The Tamayo picture of man and woman is a picture of the Mexican everyman. Uh, it is not a portrait of an individual exactly. I, I think it, you could see it as a portrait of the people with a capital P. And particularly of people who, because of the, 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 the way their physiognomy, uh, their skin color, and their clothing is presented, really stand for for people who were who are ordinary Mexicans, who are connected to questions of indigenous race and indigenous culture, and who were not coming from the social elite or the intellectual elite as uh, Atul was. So what we're saying here is that these are this this is a kind of pictorial construction which is used to ask questions and propose answers about the definition of, on the one hand, what is the modern, the great modern artist in Mexico? That would be the Atul pictures question. And on the other, who are the people who, whose, whose lives will be hopefully improved by the revolution and who are central to national identity after the revolution in a new way? Who are those people? How, 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 is the, how are the people to be figured pictorially? This was an open question. Other pictures in the exhibition depict, let's say, popular Mexico or ordinary Mexicans with different inflections in terms of race and the staging of their lives and so forth. And it turns out that you know there was no easy definition, and that's one of the things that was being worked out pictorially in, in the works being made by the most interesting artists at the time. The Dr. Adel Volcanoes made me wonder if he had read Ralph Waldo Emerson, for whom, of course, the volcano was the great metaphor for human creativity and sharing of knowledge <laughs> it, you know, he, he may have I, I can't answer that but I, I don't think he would have needed to have because of course there was also a Mexican tradition uh, uh, along those lines um, but it is fascinating to, to see how how it, it, you know a different exhibition on Dr. Atul's long career would really be fascinating because the, the volcano it just you know it's 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 a little bit like the Mont Saint-Victoire of Cezanne. I mean, it's it's the pictorial icon that generates many, many things. Atul, in addition to being a painter, was an, a, a kind of amateur volcanologist and also produced almost sort of scientific uh, works about, about the workings of volcanoes. And so it was a, sort of a mythological and also a, a scientific interest of his. Before we move into the revolutionary era, one last question that's, I guess, both about this period, but, but could could touch on other parts of the show, too. How much 
did Mexican modernists address or even feel the need to address the Catholic Church and its history in Mexico? You know, it was inescapable, partly because of the historical importance of the Catholic Church and also because as the political winds shifted after 1920, which is when the first revolutionary post-Civil War government comes in and starts its reformist program, after as the, as the, the winds continue shifting over the 20s and 30s, the political situation never stopped evolving, and the the issue, the question of the church and its it, and its power in in the country, uh, was always present in one way or another. So, you have you have images in the exhibition. I'm thinking of uh, a work by Frida Kahlo, which imitates a uh, a kind of domestic altarpiece setup. But I'm thinking of other works also. Uh, Maria Izquierdo, who uh, is a, a wonderful painter, who I think many people in, in our audience in the U.S. would find less familiar than Kahlo and find very, very interesting as well. The, these are two artists, and there are others who, who address the formats of, of religious images and especially home altars as a way of dealing with the, the, the power of, of, of religious imagery in, in, the, in, the, in terms of uh, modernist painting. You also have, of course, Jose Clemente Orozco often using extremely powerful and extremely challenging religious iconography in his murals, really, really counter-iconography. Anyone who has been to Dartmouth College uh, in New Hampshire and has had a chance to see the, the great masterpiece of of Orozco's career, which is the, the cycle of murals in the uh, reading room in the lower level of the of the Baker Library at Dartmouth called Epic of American Civilization, will remember this extraordinary image, which he painted repeatedly in, in other uh, works also. And it's, it's the image of Christ coming back and chopping down his own cross, chopping down the, the symbol of his own suffering, uh, a very militant kind of Christ. We'll see that the impact of uh, Catholic imagery is 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 everywhere in this uh, this history. Well, speaking of the murals, when did the revolution gain power, and how did the artists react to it, both both in their work and outside it? So the revolution begins in 1910 and goes until 1917 or 1920, when the first revolutionary government comes into power, and then faces the job of reconstructing the country after a very violent, very bloody civil conflict and, and, and very long civil conflict. One of the things that happened was that the education ministry was given a very large, comparatively large budget and the responsibility to, to, to really use education and the arts as part of the larger reconstruction effort. And the leader of the education ministry was a philosopher and intellectual named Jose Vasconcelos, who had long connections with the uh, intellectual and artistic avant-garde in Mexico City beforehand, started to put together a network of, of extraordinary artists and, and whose charge it would be to, to start making murals in buildings, uh, initially quite often in edu- buildings, educational institutions. So, the one simple answer to your question is that the government instantly became the primary patron of many artists. At the same time, these these were people. The artists had their own agenda. Many of them were uh, very activated politically by the revolution. They, the muralists, very early on, 
created a a union, a union of of, of leftist communist paint, painters, and started issuing their own manifestos. They had their own newspaper called El Machete, which went on to become the official publication of the Mexican Communist Party. They started uh, issuing their own proclamations and started the very difficult job, really, of negotiating their relationship to to the patron, which was the government in power. So you have a very complicated and very dynamic political situation, which produces the, the conditions for an extraordinary flowering of mural painting over the 1920s. How do we see that in, in specific commissions? And then how is it you were able to show immovable objects in your show? <laughs> well, so yes, I, I know what, what we're all thinking, right? Uh, mural paintings, fresco paintings, and we're talking about painters who, who adapted old techniques coming out of the Italian Renaissance and also coming out of uh, Mexican antiquity, where there is a, a wall painting tradition, of course. Uh, these are artists who, 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 some of whom, I'm thinking of the artists who are often thought of as the the, the three great ones, or the, the, the big three of Mexican modern art, the triumvirate of uh, Siqueiros, Orozco, and Rivera, but there are also many others who are part of this story. These people knew at the time that the work for which they were becoming most renowned was painting which was large-scale and physically bonded to the architectural surfaces where they were working, and therefore, uh, under ordinary conditions, immovable. Although, of course, they immediately reacted to that problem, which is how do you disseminate your work by inventing different um, portable uh, mediums, um, which they use to, to send, send their, their work around. But getting back to true, true frescoes, yes, they were painted in situ. And so any exhibition on the topic of modern art in Mexico faces the problem, how do you represent something which cannot be brought for a traveling exhibition? We uh, approached the problem by using a variety of, of methods, including a very, very innovative uh, digital image capture and, uh, and projection to not exactly simulate the experience of looking at a, a mural cycle such as the, and this is the, the example I'll give, the great cycle of murals in the education ministry building in the center of Mexico City that Diego Rivera created between about 1923 and 1928 called the Ballad of the Revolution. We don't, uh, you, you don't feel like you're exactly in Mexico City, but you do stand in front of a, of a, of a large wall uh, where you see projected a basically life-size image of not just the panels in which he painted between doorways and other architectural features of the building, but the whole architectural environment and as you stand there the the this this projected simulation of 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 the of the wall sort of glides past you and i think that we really have accomplished what we set out to do which is at least to give viewers a sense of the scale the presence and the fact that a mural doesn't mean anything unless it is experienced in time and space in other words not just as a, as a snapshot excised from something and imported but really the mural panel situated in its in its spatiotemporal um, environment. That's what we're trying to show. So we've used this simulation to try to get over the great stumbling block of uh, of any temporary exhibition of mural painting. I think it's it's worked out very well. We also have very very um, fully developed touch tables and other kinds of digital uh, materials that allow you to to look into the imagery and the story of the murals more deeply as you're standing in front of them. And we decided, uh, in order to give a kind of coherence to the, the, the presentation of, of mural painting within the larger story, which is where muralism is important, but it's hardly the only thing. We have works in all kinds of mediums, small and large, 
true mural fragments, large paintings, small paintings, prints, drawings, photographs, newspapers, broadsheets, and so forth. And we think that it's important. We honest, I don't think you can even understand the mural phenomenon without seeing that it's part of a much richer and, or at least larger visual culture involving all those other mediums, sculpture also. In order to give a kind of coherence to our presentation of murals, we decided to pick one exemplary work by each of the, the big three painters. So Rivera's, uh, one of, part of Rivera's great cycle for the education ministry, which is from the middle part of the 20s. Then second, uh, Orozco, I referred to it before, Orozco's great epic of American civilization f uh, at Dartmouth College, which is the early 30s. And it was important to, to have a, a U.S. mural by a great Mexican master really underlined this message that the story we're telling is binational. Mexico, Mexicans had a big impact in the States, and we trace that story. The third mural is from the late 30s, so it pulls us also chronologically forward, and it's the, the astonishing mural that Siqueiros and a team of Mexican and Spanish, um, they were uh, refugees from the Spanish Civil War, a team of Mexican and Spanish artists and designers executed uh, in 1939 and 1940 at the Education Ministry, oh, sorry. Um, the Mexican Electrician Syndicate in Mexico City. Yes, executed in 1939-1940 as a commission from uh, one of the important labor unions of Mexico City, the Electricians Union. They made this extraordinary mural in the stairwell of a, of a recently constructed building, Portrait of the Bourgeoisie, which is really a kind of nightmare image of the entire apparatus of capitalism as it is careening toward a terrible confrontation that is towards the Second World War. I thought one of the real triumphs of the show was how it found a way to show audiences that imagery and ideas that were in the murals also migrated into and back and forth between the murals and painting and printmaking. Do you have a favorite example or two of that? Well, you know, one of my favorite examples, I referred to it before, is the newspaper El Machete, which was the official sort of mouthpiece of the radical mural painters. And so there you have you have woodcuts uh, by some of the muralists, which are printed in, in on, on this extremely, you know, this, this is not an artist print. This is not a luxury edition. This is a uh, a broadsheet or a newspaper that was meant to 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 broadcast messages to a wide audience and to and to workers, and a very radical one. And so, you have, for example, by Xavier Guerrero, who was a wonderful muralist but also a wonderful graphic artist, woodcut illustrations. I'm thinking of one, a portrait of Emiliano Zapata from 1924, a great hero of the revolution. He's got the slogan "Land and Liberty" written in words uh, around the the disc of his uh, of his sombrero, and he's standing with uh, the the crossed bullet, the cartridge belt. Uh, he's got a gun. There's a kind of decorative uh, surround, including sickles and hammers. But they're here sort of the tools. They're, they're communist emblems, but they're the tools also of agrarian and industrial workers. So there you have a, an image, which of course would be found in, in, in murals by people like Rivera, but which all really certainly sort of the icon of the leader, which which circulated in all kinds of forms. And when you see it in a woodcut in this newspaper, under a headline, homage to General Emiliano Zapata on the anniversary of his death, and this is a, a woodcut printed in 1924, you start to see how how fully, as you say, how fully imprinted in the visual culture some of these iconic images really were. I could name many others, but that's one good example. Well, that's a perfect example because it's a woodcut. And I was wondering why woodcuts were such a popular 
technique for printmaking in Mexico in the time covered by your show? I think there are there are a number of answers to that question. One of them, sort of the the the, the aesthetic answer, would be that woodcut because it is produced by direct cutting with with, with rough tools into wood blocks um, from which the image is then printed. Woodcut had a had a uh, as a medium compared to other printmaking mediums had had a connotation of a kind of rough directness which translated into a kind of authenticity um, which I think underlined the messages that were also expressed in the style and in, and in the words if there were words in, 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 in these prints and it was also a convenient method for uh, at a time when the the printmaking apparatus you know you, you needed something that was practical. It, it, it was useful. It was it was a good medium for for the printing, the technological demands of the kinds of, of newspaper printing that they were doing at the time. So it's a combination of technical and aesthetic preferences that I think is very powerful. The 1920s and then the 1930s, especially and into the 40s, was a, a moment of great resurgence in Mexican printmaking. Uh, as you go further in time and you get to the, to, the, to the late 30s and the 40s, you have the emergence of a, a couple of groups that uh, of printmakers that really continue what the radical artists of the 20s had started, and that is the use of printmaking to to make images for for mass distribution for large audiences rather than rather than narrow audiences, and the the great story there is a group called the TGP or the People's Graphic Workshop, which was led by a, an extraordinary uh, printmaker named Leopoldo Mendez, who is one of the many figures whose career you can trace all the way through the show because he's he's very young at the beginning of our narrative and then towards the end of our narrative he really comes into his own as the leader of this group, the TGP. And they just produce a kind of flood of, of, of works on uh, society and pol- political issues in Mexico and internationally with a... The, and are able to develop, I think, a, a Mexican tradition of caricatural, satirical, uh, humoristic, socially minded graphic work, which is really nourished by the experience of modernism in the visual arts, because it's part of it, and it makes a huge impact before, during, and after World War II. And I'm glad to say that we have a very, very complete representation of that, that part of the story, partly because one of the organizing institutions, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, is the repository probably of the greatest collection of Mexican modern printmaking in any U.S. institution, and we were able to to really um, bolster the representation of that that of that kind of material in the show. Yes, one of the the fun bits about this show is walking through it. One can, you know, even somebody not steeped in Mexican modernism can see eight possible next shows jumping off of the walls. <laughs> You mentioned sculpture a little bit ago. The, the earliest sculpture in the show is from around 1930, the very late 20s, early 1930s. Why Why is now the time when sculpture comes into the story? So the question of sculpture is very interesting, and I think probably there's lots more work to be done in terms of scholarship and exhibitions in this area. But the short answer is that of course, all kinds of sculpture is being made in Mexico, and you have monumental sculpture for public buildings. Um, just, just to name one example, the the Palace of Fine Arts in, on the edge of the Alameda Park in Mexico City, which in the 30s would, would become the predecessor of the of the Great Museum, which which is one of the partners in our exhibition, is a great on the exterior Art Nouveau building 
it was started around 1900, and it's covered with with monumental sculpture, which is kind of an Aztec nouveau and really great. So, all kinds of, of sculptures being made in Mexico at that time. But but we really wanted to focus on the intersection of avant-garde, uh, 20th century avant-garde aesthetics and and sculpture. And so, what we found um, was that there were two moments that really gravitated most closely to our story and actually depending on how you define sculpture you, you you can in our show go back to the early 20s 23 and 24 if you uh, if you look at a cardboard construction and a polychrome terracotta by a, a remarkable sculptor named Herman Cueto who was part of of, of a group called the Stridentists uh, who were essentially the Mexican analogs of the Italian futurists and were were parallel to the Italian futurists in the aggressivity of their their uh, avant-garde rhetoric. So you have these these. Uh, there's one of these works that I'm referring to. It's a polychrome terracotta of 923 by Cueto, uh, a portrait of one of the members of this group, which has has his grimacing face painted in the most caricatural and vibrant possible colors. It's a good uh, icon of of the whole attitude of the stridentist. But you're right. Many of the other works sculpture works in the show are a little bit later. They, they tend to, to be direct carvings, carved in wood or carved in stone. And, and the, the key figure there is an artist named Mardonio Magania. His works are around 1930. He was a person who actually started out, the story is that he was a person working as a porter in a school, one of the innovative um, schools of the period, art schools, the workshop of direct carving. And this the story, which is too good not to be partly apocryphal, I guess, is that this, this, this worker in the school then took up the tools of carving and started making, using, using the most direct methods possible, a chisel on stone and on wood and so forth, these, these remarkable images of ordinary Mexican types. So, for example, a mother and child, a, mo- a mother with a child on her back, uh, the child is, is wrapped in a, in, a, in a shawl or blanket. On her back, she's standing with a dog next to her. A Mexican type, for example, is also a wooden image uh, called the Agrarian Chief, which is possibly an image of a, of a leader of one of the, um, one of the um, groups of, 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 of farm workers. The, the story is that Magana starts sculpting and becomes a kind of um, naive genius of sculpture. And then Diego Rivera declares him the greatest Mexican sculptor, and, and, and there you are. But what's interesting is that in what we found, what, what we focused on was the way in which sculpture emerged out of specific avant-garde contexts, which um, we were telling the story of, and those are two examples. But we, we, we did not deal with the much broader story of sculpture, which, which also includes sculpture for public buildings uh, and all kinds of uh, more traditional uh, aspects, I would say, of the, of the story. My guest is Matthew Afron. We'll be right back after a break. From Washington, D.C. and America's first modern art museum come Manet, Degas, and Cezanne, Van Gogh, Gauguin, Bernard, and Matisse, along with Picasso, Brock, Miro, and Kandinsky. A modern vision, European masterworks from the Phillips Collection at the Kimball Art Museum through August 13th. Plan your visit at kimballart.org. The Getty presents Friday Flights, a series of interdisciplinary happenings that brings together a range of Los Angeles-based artists to transform the Getty experience. 
Join visual artist Molly Cerno and musician Brian Chase of the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs on Friday, July 14th at 6 p.m. for their presentation of the choreographed soundscape We of Me, among other experimental installations throughout the evening. Learn more about this program and other upcoming events at getty.edu 360. And now back to my conversation with Matthew Afron. In the late 20s and 30s, so in about this period, the landscape and people we were talking about in earlier Mexican modernism begins to be replaced by industry. Why? And uh, do you have a couple of favorite examples? So, you know, one of the things that I think may be surprising about the show for, for many, many members of the audience is that although the question of folklore and traditional culture is very important in Mexican modernism. It is not the whole story at all. The the government that came in in 1920 and then subsequent governments, of course, were very interested in the industrial development of Mexico. And of course, being 20th century modernists, the artists were very drawn to the imagery of the big city, to the imagery of factories, to the imagery of technology, uh, airplanes, steam, steamships, and so forth. That, that was just the common coin of avant-garde aesthetics worldwide. And, and it's one of the things that connects the look of, of some of the work that you see in the show to the look of art being made at the very same time uh, in St. Petersburg or, let's say, uh, in Berlin or in New York or any, really anywhere. So you have one set of works which really shows this remarkably, and that is some works by people like Juan O'Gorman or the photographer Manuel Alvarez Bravo or Rufino Tamayo or Maria Izquierdo. All of them contributed in 1931 uh, images uh, on fresco or on canvas or in photography to a competition which was sponsored for images of a new cement factory called the Toltec Cement Factory, which was which which was being constructed on the outskirts of Mexico City. And there you have a commission which really called for the works in precisely this vein, and and, and there, there it's a remarkable um, set of images in the show. I, I think the question of these works tells you that the landscape was changing in Mexico as quickly and as much as it was anywhere else, and so if modernism is the is, it could be defined as the cultural response to modernization, which is the, the social and economic and real uh, transformations under modernity that, that happen in, in the world. The set of works on the Toltec uh, cement factory is a great place to get into that topic. You mentioned photography. Are photographers engaged with painters and printers and muralists and sculptors, or are they existing a world apart? Uh, as as just as is the case in in other places in the early 20th century, these worlds are very closely connected. You have people like as uh, Alvarez Bravo, but other um, photographers, Tina Madati, wonderful and important example. You have Paul Strand. You have Edward Weston. You have photographers who are 
maybe less well-known, but very, very important, at least in the U.S., like Emilio Amaro, who was also a wonderful muralist and also a wonderful printmaker, but made very innovative photographs. Augustine Jimenez, who was both a commercial and an avant-garde photographer. These are people who were, were connected to the, the, the world of the avant-garde through, through printing, through publication, through innovative uh, graphic design, and, and who were j- just living in the same world. So I, I would say that, that that relationship goes two ways. I, I don't think that you can possibly understand the aesthetics or the politics of Diego Rivera's murals without understanding that he uh, had been inspired by his encounter with the great Russian filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein, uh, who came to Mexico to make an unfinished magnum opus called uh, Que Viva Mexico. You, you can't understand what Orozco is doing in his murals without seeing that he also is is a man who is who, or, or certainly Siqueiros is the greatest example. Let's let's take that one. Siqueiros uh, is a man who, by the 30s, decided that muralism was not going to survive if it only depended on its connection to uh, historical sources. And what I mean is the the technique of fresco. He really came to believe that muralism could be remain vibrant only if it was understood to be an art of the century of mechanical reproducibility. That, that mural painting would have to stand up to the mass media and especially to, to film. And that's what he tried to do in, in literally in the composition and in the, in the working method of the creation of this great portrait of the bourgeoisie mural for the Electricians Union building at the end of the 30s. So, but just to step back to the, to the question, I would say that the relationship really works both ways. You have people who are photographers, people who are graphic designers, and you have people who are working big uh, as muralists or painters, and they're feeding off each other in every possible direction. Moving toward the the late part of the show in terms of chronology, do the Mexican modernists address World War II more directly in their work than American modernists did? And if so, why? I, I do think that the the... Mexican modernists engaged with the international situation during the Spanish Civil War at the end of the 30s and during World War II in a remarkable way. And, you know, Mexico didn't exactly participate in World War II, but many Mexicans fought in the Spanish Civil War and Mexico was 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 very active on the world stage politically. You also had lots of connections back and forth with the arrival of uh, of political and other exiles, some of them to New York, some of them to Mexico City, and some elsewhere. So there was lots of connections back and forth. One of the key key works in the in terms of printmaking in the exhibition is a is a work by Leopoldo Mendez, the leader of the TGP, great political printmaker. It's called Deportation to Death. It's a lino cut of 1942. It was first published in a book that was created by uh, leftist intellectuals, many of them German emigres or exiles living in, in Mexico City. It's called the Black Book of Nazi Terror, and it's one of the early compendiums of writing and, and also images, some of them by Mexican artists who were, who were there locally, uh, about, about the Holocaust. And so to, back to uh, Mendez's Deportation to Death, it's a picture which which shows a, a sort of an endless line of, of railroad boxcars with soldiers, and then the, the boxcar closest uh, to the foreground opens, and you see that there are people huddled inside, and they are, they, are, they are deportees. This is one of the earliest 
images of the death camp system in Germany and Europe. And I think that it's remarkable that it was made by a great Mexican political printmaker in 1942 because it tells you something about the legacy of, of political art in Mexico and also Mexico's connection to to the world stage and to the, the way in which uh, an art of social concern in Mexico um, was connected to everything. Can I ask a quick question about that? In, in, it's a 1942 work, and the Philly Museum acquired it the very next year, which is unusual for many reasons, including uh, America's, frankly, anti-Semitic resistance to embracing Holocaust-related narratives. How did the museum come to acquire it in 1943? Do you know? Uh, so, so the museum did the, the, the museum in 1942. Let's say had almost no collection of modern Mexican art, very small collection of modern art of any kind. But then the, the museum did this uh, very, very landmark exhibition called Mexican Art Today, and that show really kicked off the, the creation over the decades of what is today one of the great collections of, of that type of art in, in any public institution in the U.S. And what's interesting is that. Within months after the um, show closed, uh, the work started to come into the collection, especially as gifts of various kinds. And so, I, uh, although I have to go back and look, I, that that must be how this this work came in. So, you know, the the story is always more complicated. The U.S.'s relationship to to the whole question of the war and 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 of anti-Semitism and of the Holocaust was was complicated, but. Uh, it's not. It is not actually. There, there is. There is a clear reason why this print would have come into our museum at that time. To what extent is abstraction a story in in your show? This is the period when abstraction is rising in America. Abstraction really begins to take foot in the United States with Clifford Still uh, working in Richmond, Virginia, and in the East Bay shipyards in the Bay Area in the early 1940s, and with Pollock's mural in 1943. To what extent do we see abstraction in Mexico? Well, there is abstraction in Mexico in this period, and it's interesting because it's in, in our minds we think of it as a moment of social realism because of Rivera and others. And I would say a couple of things. First of all, when you see the exhibition, the first thing you see in Rivera is the moment when he's in, in Paris and he's, he's, he's becoming a prominent Cubist painter. This is during the 19-teens. And one of the things I think is useful there is that it sort of shocks us out of our preconceptions of Rivera because the question that you have to ask yourself is how did somebody who was um, working uh, in such an in, in intensely coded Cubist way in, in, in the 1915, how did he become a uh, so-called social realist 10 years later? And what it forces you to, to, to think is that maybe there is a legacy of, of Cubism in his, in his mural painting and then your view of his mural painting is enriched. But to continue the story, there are moments of, of abstraction. One of the great abstract, so-called abstract works in the show is by a wonderful artist named Carlos Merida. It's called Deer Dance, 1935, and it's it's a work which you know which which clearly has a, a representational dimension. It's it's a, an image of a traditional dancer in a deer costume, but it's so boiled down into a kind of geometrical sign that you you know you can certainly say that it has it has a, a abstraction in it. By the 19, late 30s and into the 40s, there was, a, there was a strong current of abstract art within surrealism and within, within the larger sort of surrealist orbit. Another example of that combination of factors would be the work of Wolfgang Pollen, who was the Austrian-born uh, artist who came to Mexico 
via Paris uh, as, a, as, a, as an exile during World War II and was the center of a very important surrealist um, group in Mexico, in Mexico during, during the war. His work, too, uh, is very abstract. So abstract surrealism, in quotation marks, would be one of the places where this is seen. Of course, abstraction becomes even more prevalent in the 50s and 60s after this. That would be the next part of the story. One of the people who, uh, artists who was very, very important in the story of Mexican abstraction after World War II is Gunther Gerso. And it's wonderful that we have in the show a very early work by him called The Dismembered One, or Dismembered, 1944, small picture, very complex. And it's, it's a, a kind of a, a version of a surrealist, tortured body, abstract, um, sort of body still life. And it's there partly to, to say that, you know, if there would, would be a great tradition of abstraction also after the 1950, and therefore after the story we're telling, its roots are in in the the 30s and 40s. This would be a good place for me to admit I'm skipping much of the surrealism story in this conversation. <laughs> Sorry. Two kind of summary questions. First, you note in the catalog that art history didn't really discover and fully integrate Frida Kahlo into the story of Mexican art until the 1980s. Why not? And once we do integrate her into the story of Mexican modernism, how does it impact or change the story? Well, the, the 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 great rise to prominence of Frida Kahlo in the sort of big story of Mexican modern art is 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 something that happens, I guess, in the 1980s, and it's certainly bound up in the in the development of feminist art history. And so she she becomes a very important figure for scholars who are trying to to work art history in a new and interesting way. She changes the story in a sense because she can be pitched, and she's not the only one, there are many other male and female artists in the story who can be pitched as doing something different from the muralists, but related to the muralists. So in other words, it, it, it helps to broaden the questions that you ask. Mural painting is about big scale, it's about collective aesthetics, not individual aesthetics, it's about, it, it, it has a certain cultural and political tone. Callow works on a much more miniature scale, though the issues she's dealing with are, are, are huge. She, she's a person who puts much of her own biography into her work. The tone of her work is, is quite different. But you could say that about other fascinating female and male artists. Maria Izquierdo would be one in the show. And I think that it's very important that we understand that both the aesthetics and the politics of, of Mexican modern art does not begin and end with the mural. And I think that our sense of the mural is enriched by knowing that. The last two works in the show, at least as presented in the catalog chronology, I don't know how it works in, in Houston, we're talking before the show in Houston opens, are two Tamayos, 1946's Cataclysm and 1952's Homage to the Indian Race. Why were the why are those the two uh, with which you you chose to close? Well, I, I'll start with a, a caveat, and that is that those those two images are not unfortunately in the Houston presentation. So the chronology ends a bit differently and, and wonderfully with other works in the show here. But we ended with Tamayo because he's a figure who it runs through the whole show. He's a wonderful artist. Uh, he's sometimes thought of as the fourth great Mexican uh, modern artist, although he 
often would quarrel with that idea, partly because he, unlike or differently from Siqueiros, Orozco, and Rivera, he really was not interested in making art instrumental for politics. And that's one of the, one of the attitudes which um, separates him from the, some of the other big figures, although, of course, visually and aesthetically and historically, there are many connections between his work and their work. Nevertheless, the story of Tamayo is that in the 50s, which is sort of the ending point for us, he had a great rise to prominence on the international scene. And it's partly because he, he, unlike Rivera, say, could not be so closely tied to a tradition of realist painting and to a tradition of political painting, which increasingly came to be seen as specific to a particular time and place in Mexico. Tamayo's work really registered on the international scene as an international, as connected to international abstract art aesthetics as they were developing in the 50s, even though his work had clear connections to the imagery of indigenous Mexico, to the imagery of volcanoes, to the imagery of uh, flower sellers, and so forth. So it was it was certainly rooted in a Mexican experience. It also had a kind of big abstract power that could allow it to, uh, in effect, cross borders in a, in its own way. And that's one reason why Tamayo sort of closes the narrative as it's represented in the exhibition catalog. Matthew Afrin, thanks so much. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Paint the Revolution, Mexican Modernism, 1910 to 1950, the most comprehensive exhibition of modern Mexican art displayed in the United States in more than seven decades, featuring some 175 works and including masterpieces by Frida Kahlo, Jose Clemente Orozco, Diego Rivera, and Rufino Tamayo. Now on view at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org revolution for more. MoMA's Innovative Projects series, which introduces new artists to wider audiences, is back with Projects 106 Martine Sims. It's an immersive installation centering around her feature-length film Incense Sweaters and Ice. This year, MoMA's offering extended summer hours. It's open late, late, until 9 p.m. every Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, giving you more chances to see it. And kick back in the Abbey Aldrich Rockefeller Sculpture Garden at dusk. Plan your visit to the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan today. Get more info at MoMA.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center presents Ronnie Horn on view through August 20th. See Horn's large-scale cylindrical glass sculptures that are infused with light, weight, and presence. The exhibition, the first U.S. museum presentation of her work since 2010 and her first to focus specifically on cast glass sculpture, highlights the artist's inspiration from nature and language as well as the reflective and translucent qualities of glass. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Andrea Chung. An exhibition of her work is now at the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego. It's her first museum exhibition. It's titled, You Broke the Ocean in Half to Be Here. It'll be at the MCASD's downtown location through August 20th. Chung's work, including an installation she's planning for the forthcoming Prospect Ennial in New Orleans, explores the legacies of migration and colonialism in the Caribbean. Andrea Chung, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. 
I think a lot of the work we're about to talk about references Jamaica, the Caribbean, and various forms of colonialism. So I wanted to start by asking why a San Diegan who was born in Newark, raised in Houston, schooled in Florence, New York, and Baltimore has such a connection to the Caribbean. Uh, Well, my parents are from the Caribbean. So my father is from Kingston, Jamaica, and my mother is from Trinidad. Being a first generation, it's kind of impossible to (laughs) not have that be such a big part of the work, just heavily influenced by my family and just trying. I think a lot of it started just trying to understand how my grandparents made their way into the Caribbean. My grandfather's from China. My grandmother on my father's side was also um, she was mixed with both black and white. And then my mother, um, her mother was mixed with Chinese and Arawak, and her father was mixed with black and white. So I've just always been really interested in in sort of understanding the circumstances of what brought them there, what life was like. I didn't really get to know my grandparents very well, only saw them a handful of times. So it just was something that sort of sparked an investigation. Do you remember where in your training as an artist or in your post-school career as an artist you decided that it was okay for your biography to inform your art because not everyone makes that decision. Yeah. I mean, I think I started in grad school kind of purely out of the fact that like I had no idea how I got into grad school. Um, (laughs) You went to the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore for grad school. Yeah. And I was, I had initially tried to get into the painting program and I was waitlisted, but I did get into the interdisciplinary program, which I think in hindsight was like a blessing. And my husband and I had just gotten married and moved to Baltimore and had no money. I had no money for supplies. I was literally painting on butcher paper and black and white paint because it was the only paint I could afford. And I just really had no idea what, like, I had no idea what I was doing there. All of my peers were talking about pigments and art history, and I just did not have a very good art history background whatsoever. I was an illustration major in undergrad, so I didn't really know anything. So it was a lot of catch-up. And I think in the meantime of me trying to catch up, I had to do something. So I just started drawing and painting portraits of my family. And that's really how it all started. was a lack of money and, you know, having these family images around and just painting. So at that point, did you know your full family history, family tree, family geography, or did you learn it as part of moving toward it artwise? I knew a good portion of it, but I definitely learned more as a result of, of deciding to make work about my family in the region. We'll talk about specific works in a moment, but one of the things that your work has done for the last decade is mine, not just your family history, but broader cultural and geographic and political histories. Was history something that always interested you or was research into history kind of a byproduct of learning about your family? That purely came from my husband. He went to school, he went to UCLA for history. And I was so interested in the things that he was learning Um, And we would have a lot of discussions about the things that he learned. And he kind of really is the reason why I wanted to go to grad school. I was so into everything that he was learning. And I got to meet some of his professors and they would have us over for dinner. It just seemed like the natural approach after having these conversations with him. 
I also feel like he's very much my collaborator. He's a huge part of my work. He may not want the attention or his name attached to anything, but he is a big part of the work and I bounce everything off of him. And we have a lot of conversations about history and the present, specifically about the diaspora. So yeah, I definitely attribute that to him. The histories your work engages most are histories related to colonialism and diaspora. And one of the works at MCASD is an immersive uh, room-sized installation made up of cyanotypes and watercolor. Kind of think Edruchet chocolate room, but you've kind of made the thing over for your own purposes. It's called uh, Filthy Water Cannot Be Washed. We'll have images on manpodcast.com. Um, and it engages the Caribbean's history of colonialism via lionfish. What the heck are lionfish? <laughs> <laughs> lionfish are an incredibly beautiful and seductive fish that is um, native to the Indian Ocean. And I had first seen them when I was in Mauritius, which is a um, a really small island that is like maybe, you want to say like five, 600 miles from um, Madagascar. It's also a, also a former colony. Former French colony, yeah. Actually, former Dutch, French, and British colony. The Brits being the last one to colonize them. So we would, I was doing a lot of investigation on food, and my husband was doing a lot of fishing, and he had caught a lionfish, and it was the first time I'd ever seen it, but I knew that they were highly poisonous. I was kind of nerding out on um, PBS one day, and they were like, the deadliest fish or whatever. And it was like number two next to a stonefish. And it was the first time I'd seen it. They were fairly large. They're incredibly beautiful, but they're highly um, deadly. Their spines are filled with poison. So if you were to get stuck by one, you would need to go to the hospital immediately, or you could have something amputated or even die. So it seems sort of like an interesting metaphor, especially because there's now this lionfish invasion that has taken over the Caribbean, parts of the Atlantic, they're now in the Mediterranean and they've actually found them like as far down as, as off the coast of Brazil now. And there's, they're an invasive species. They don't have any, um, they don't have a predator on this side of the world. So there's nothing to keep the population numbers down and they reproduce very quickly and they destroy ecosystems. They eat all the other fish. It's getting to the point now where they're cannibalizing their average size has gone from 12 inches to almost 18, 20 inches. And I just felt like it was, it was an appropriate metaphor to talk about colonialism and the destructive nature of colonialism. So as a viewer walks into a gallery at MCA San Diego, one is, with the exception of the doorway, of course, completely surrounded by these uh, obviously blue cyanotypes of, of lionfish. And I think you're doing a version of uh, the same kind of space for Prospect 4 later this year, right? Yes. So I understand, obviously, and, and, and clearly, why lionfish are a great metaphor for colonialism on many levels and layers. What makes cyanotype a good way to extend that metaphor into visual space? I'm also very much interested in the history of photography in relation to the Caribbean and how how that has been documented and how images have been used in the region. So slavery was abolished prior to um, photography. There's no photographic evidence of, of slavery. Um, 
in the region. And I, I found that really interesting, especially because we're such a visual culture that um, we believe everything we, we see. I mean, now with the, you know, with Photoshop and everything like that, it's, it's a slightly different thing. But, you know, people saw, looked at that as like proof. And I thought that it was interesting that there is no evidence of that. And actually, a lot of the images that are used in texts of slavery in the Caribbean, those images are highly posed um, and ended up being used to promote tourism um, in the region, which is also something that I heavily critique in, in my practice. So it just seemed like a very a good medium to work in. And I think that the, the early uses with like Anna Atkins, they were all images of like algae and nature. So it just, it just fit. It just seemed like it fit for me. And um, I like to work with low tech materials. I also like to teach myself something new every time I do a new project. So a large part of it was, was doing that and, and finding something new to learn, to have another tool in the toolbox. So just built a dark room in my half bathroom and I print everything on my porch. I wash it off in a plastic kiddie pool in my backyard. <laughs> you know, That's I try awesome. to make, I make things that anyone can, can do, that it's easily accessible, both uh, conceptually and process-wise. Another way you engage photography is through collage. And uh, we'll have some examples from the MCA San Diego show on, on manpodcast.com. But a lot of your collage work involves removing people from images in once from which they were once included either with you know say scissors or by bleaching or by other methods what about removal is an attractive strategy for you well that series mayday and the series that sort of sprung from that after where i'm removing the figures from advertisements I advertisements thinking, promoting tourism in the caribbean such as in jamaica for example right i had started off kind of like thinking about the reason so many people were brought to the Caribbean and a lot of it was through trade and thinking about people as exports and then thinking of ideas of labor and trying to find a way to sort of honor that labor. And I could never actually take any way and anyone away from their, their situations in their environment. So I decided to give them a day off. So that's why I cut them out of, I cut them out of their work environments to give them a little bit of break and then also playing with the the shadows, thinking about duppies, which are what we refer to as ghosts, and sort of like a haunting effect that happens when you when you prop the image off the wall slightly. So that was that was sort of the invention of those pieces. And I also I like to have a sense of humor in my work. <laughs> I like to be a little tongue in cheek with how I do things. So that's a well, large part of it. Let me use that as a way to jump in to a 2008 work titled Bleach. It's from the series Caribbean Life and Travel. And it's, uh, we'll have an image on the website. It says, uh, it's, it's a, a riff on an advertisement. It says Jamaica in, in, in large, text, large text on the left. The text is, people become Jamaica fans because of the beautiful sun, sea, beaches, flowers, hotels, and other reasons. What's the other reason and how did you access it with Bleach? <laughs> I would like to first say that that is the original text to that advertisement. I didn't change anything except for capitalizing the O and other. That magazine is actually called Caribbean Travel and Life, and it is incredibly problematic. Um, it's been around <laughs> since like the late 70s. I mean, it's so bad. It's good. Like, I love it because it's just it's just ripe with such terrible imagery and text 
And that image is of Cinta Bronte, who is really well known for being in this wet red T-shirt that says Jamaica across her chest. Everyone knows that poster. It's really iconic. And I thought it was really interesting that she's actually not even Jamaican. She's actually from Trinidad. And she was forced to sign a contract to basically say that, like, she couldn't tell anyone that she was from Trinidad. And I I found that really interesting that the tourism board would use these exotified, exoticized, sorry, images of, of women to promote the country, that they would really heavily promote sex tourism and not really think about all of the amazing cultural things that are in Jamaica. I mean, we're more than weed, Bob Marley, and beautiful women. There's a, the country has a lot to offer. And I find that a lot of, a lot of tourism from countries of color are promoted that way versus looking at someplace like Paris. You know, you're not seeing a naked white woman, <laughs> you know, on display telling you to come here. And it's just kind of questioning that and thinking about who is this marketed to? I mean, it's not marketed to me. <laughs> no, well, another big part of, of both that marketing campaign and your examination of the Caribbean diaspora labor colonialism is looking at how maybe some of the ways in which the black body is used in the late 20th and 21st century isn't so different from how the black body was used in that region in the 18th and 19th centuries. Not at all. There's no difference. All of the images are of black bodies are, that are in subservient positions. So if you look at posed images from um, the late 19th century and you look at travel magazines, they're all bent over. They're in um, subservient positions. They're laying down in the cane fields. That would never happen. And I find it so interesting that we've moved from one service economy of, you know, using slavery to harvest sugarcane to another service economy of having, you know, figures, these black bodies sexualized for your pleasure. And I find that really problematic and really interesting and disappointing, just very, very disappointing. Um, So this is sort of like just my commentary on it. Well, speaking of of sugar and pleasure, you've been making work about sugar for at least a decade. One of the works at MCA San Diego titled Boopsie features a sugarcane field with an added collaged figure. Your work about sugar hasn't just been collage. You've made sculptures actually out of sugar, cast out of sugar. What about the history of, of sugar caught your attention and... When and how did you realize that you wanted to both work on sugar and and literally <laughs> in sugar? Uh, I have a I have a personal relationship to it because my grandmother died of diabetes. She died having her second leg amputated, and you know throughout my family there are quite a few people that are diabetic. I remember as a kid having to go to a, a, a class with my dad at the hospital to learn how to maintain his blood sugar. So it's, 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 you know, plays a huge role in my familial history. And then I had been doing all this research about my family at the time and thinking a lot about my grandmother and again, ways of, of honoring her. And I decided to 
cast my own leg out of sugar so that I could give it to her to replace her own. Um, and that, that was sort of the start of it. And just thinking about how sugar has changed the dynamic of the world. You know, it's this very mundane thing that we don't really think about, but it's destroyed so many lives. I mean, it's created a transatlantic slave trade. You know, it's, it's, it's peculiar when you, when you think about it. I always joke and say that food must have been incredibly horrible during those days, because I mean, when you look at the spice trade and how that also affected other parts of the world, it's it's astonishing that something so mundane could could do that. Yeah, and I, I feel like we're still recovering from that. I, I don't think that it just stopped once slavery was abolished. I think we're constantly feeling the effects of colonialism to this day. I mean, we have a very unstable economy in a lot of Caribbean islands, and you know, there's really Really no, I don't know how you can come back from that. So yeah, I mean, it just, it's just very personal. I also think that sugar is incredibly addictive. It's probably the most addictive drug there is. You know, you, you can't avoid it. It's in everything that you eat. And this desire for this, just the strong desire for something and, and not really thinking about where your food comes from, just really interests me. Finally, San Diego, where you live and where this show is at the moment, has a colonial past, of course. New Orleans, where you'll be showing in Prospect, has a lot of colonial pasts. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a, it's, New Orleans is an amazing city. And just, God, it's such a complicated history. Such a complicated history. When, you're, when you know you're going to be showing in a certain city, do you try to find colonialisms that are both true to your own interests, but that also reference that city's history, or is that less important? It depends. Yeah, it just, it really depends. I mean, of course, for, for Prospect, I'm definitely thinking about colonialism, colonial, colonialism um, in the city, in the history. But New Orleans is particularly special to me because it's, it has such a close relationship to the Caribbean that it seems impossible to not <laughs> focus on that. So I am going to shift the work to sort of speak to to New Orleans. And I'm also trying to stay true to the theme that Trevor has, has set up. Trevor Schoonmacher, the curator of the show. Right, yeah. And then the location that I'm in is really interesting. I'm, I'm at the Ogden Museum of um, Southern Art. I also grew up in the South, so... I'm, I went to New Orleans quite a bit when I was a kid, and the space that I'm in, actually, the Ogden, the way it's positioned is it's right next to where the Robert E. Lee monument was that was removed, and directly next to the museum, and the museum actually wraps around it, is the museum, the Civil War Museum. <laughs> ah, so it's like, it's, it's kind of like the, the Richmond, Virginia setup. Yeah, so I feel like... There's no way that I can't comment on that. The fact that the building I'm in wraps around this institution and is literally a couple steps away from this monument, there's no way that I can can ignore that. So I'm definitely going to think about a lot of that um, while I'm making the work. And as for San Diego, I don't necessarily think so much about San Diego's um, history, but I did do a project at the um, it's the Cabrillo Monument. I was asked to oh, do a yeah. pro- I was asked to do a project there, and I could do anything I wanted. 
And I was like, are you sure you really want me to do this? I was like, because this guy like was a horrible individual who was a huge part of colonialism. And I was like, I don't know if you really, <laughs> you really want me to do this. I was like, I can't in good conscience, not critique this. So I, I, I did. I, um, I find it really interesting that there is this monument to someone who was a huge part of the raping and the massacring of natives in this part of California. And that the ship that he came on, the San Salvador, which people in San Diego spent four years recreating the exact replica of it, was a slave ship. (laughs) And they have these events where the San Salvador boat goes across the bay and people celebrate. And I'm like, you're celebrating a slave ship. I don't understand that. I don't understand it. And I, I feel like ignoring that is a huge part of San Diego. I hate to say that, but, you know, if, this I, is if a- I could jump in with one quick description, the Cabrillo National Monument is across San Diego Bay from where downtown San Diego and the modern and even the old city was. And, and so uh, between San Diego Bay and, and the Cabrillo Monument is, is Coronado. So even the site points to an imperative, which was quarantine. Right. So for this project, I took, I took all of the text that the small museum that's in there, I took all of their texts and just edited out a few words. I like kind of left spaces where you could fill in the blanks and I posted them around the site like they were actual, I don't know what you would call them, like actual displays that would give you a description of, of certain things around the, um, the monument. So I kind of placed those strategically around the space, but it got taken down like a week later. <laughs> so yeah, I think it was a, a little more than, um, it wasn't just me. It was, it was quite a few artists, but I think that there was the politics behind it had was problematic and they ended up removing everything. But um, yeah, I find that very strange that the city would celebrate something like that. They have a Caprio festival every year where people dress up in like colonial cosplay or whatever. It's just crazy to me, but it's indicative of the city. It's a very segregated city. It's very conservative, you know, for all the things that people say about Texas, Houston is way more diverse than San Diego and not, nearly as segregated as this city is. I have never in my life been treated as poorly as any other place than this city. I mean, it's just the racism here is just incredible. I don't know how I'm not in jail for like strangling somebody yet, but it's just, it's really, really hard. It's hard to navigate. It's really, really hard to navigate. I mean, I have situations where children won't play with my son. They're children. We don't know anything about race, like, but that's the city. So I'll always be very stern in discussing anything um, regarding San Diego. I'm, I'm real. I'm a really big critic of the city and a lot of the social aspects of the city. Well, Andrea Chung, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.